Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that puts a magnifying glass to the role of cars and transport in our society and ends up burning a hole in it. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories with David Campbell including further woes for diesel drivers as fuel consumption found to be up to 75% more than stated by manufacturers. We give a summary of the vehicle sales figures for the first quarter of 2018, and despite financial constraints in many areas, we are still buying new cars. I talk to Brian Smith about what the road system needs to provide to help autonomous vehicles. And Brian also offers his expertise as we have a happy-go-lucky ramble through some unusual news stories, including the Czech firm which is producing retro coupe vehicles with a modern twist, they're electric, and thieves steal a highway in China, and a study finds cyclists don't break road rules more than car drivers. We question the survey methodology. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au and you can listen to a podcast of the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Look up the automotive section and overdrive for cars and culture. Now to begin the program, let's have the news. Recently released data shows that drivers could be burning through as much as 75% more fuel than stated by manufacturers. Carly, the developer of the Carly Connected Car app, has recently released information collected from over 1 million vehicles. The Connected Car app can perform a manufacturer quality diagnostic session, providing insight into actual mileage, fuel economy, as well as fault codes logged in the car. The data shows year-on-year increases in discrepancies in fuel consumption in every new model generation since 2004, up until 2017, where the difference appears to actually reduce slightly. The most significant difference was found in diesel cars from 2016, achieving an average of 75% higher consumption rates than stated in information provided by the vehicle manufacturer. Overall, the Carly uncovered discrepancies were greatest in the three most popular vehicle segments, small and medium cars and SUVs. A simple, affordable and apparently foolproof solution to the problem that has led to the current worldwide demonization of diesel engines, emissions of life-limiting nitrogen oxides or NOx, has been discovered by a team of British automotive research specialists. The system called ACT, or Ammonia Creation and Conversion Technology, has reached such a promising stage that the creators are being besieged by car manufacturers, component suppliers and even owners of large diesel fleets that have heard about the innovation and are desperate to use it to solve what they see as motoring's most urgent problem. The team has been working on exhaust emissions for many years but achieved its breakthrough in the last two years. Preliminary tests on a city-based stop-start taxi indicate that ACT can capture 98% of exhaust-borne nitrogen oxides in an exhaust-mounted chamber. In the past decade, NOx has become infamous. It springs from the fact 
that diesels become more efficient as they run hotter and this heat increases their NOx output. The effect has led to rapidly rising awareness of NOx's detrimental effect on health. Current European research suggests it shortens over 70,000 lives a year. And still with diesel. In the UK, the slump in demand for diesel-engined cars has continued to hit the British new car market, which declined by nearly 16% year-on-year in March. Preliminary figures show that demand for diesel cars was down by over 37%. By comparison, sales of alternative-fueled vehicles, including electric cars, was up by more than 5%, and demand for petrol cars increased by just under 1%. In Australia, sales of diesel private passenger cars are down, but the numbers were never high to begin with. The local demand for SUVs is not pushing for diesel. It is the light commercial vehicle sector, particularly utes, that is pushing our local demand for diesel engines. More than 1.2 million road users in the Netherlands are now able to receive personal real-time warnings about traffic jams, vehicles causing traffic problems and suddenly changing local weather conditions due to the launch of live connected services by the Talking Traffic Partnership. Users of a smartphone app are the first to benefit from the real-time information which has been launched by a partnership between the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure, 60 regional and local governments, and a large number of national and international companies including Siemens and Ericsson. As the service develops, more new information will become available such as the current availability of rush hour and add-on lanes, and other providers will soon follow with similar services. The new system consists of smart traffic lights that communicate wirelessly with each other and with vehicles using V2X or Vehicle to Everything and IoT, Internet of Thing Technologies, with the aim of helping to improve the overall traffic flow. After a controversial crackdown, New York will legalise one class of battery-boosted bicycles. The battery-boosted e-bikes are very popular among the 50,000-plus delivery cyclists in the city. The problem is, e-bikes haven't been entirely legal. Last year, the mayor of New York announced that the city would crack down on the swarm of e-bikes on its streets in response to safety complaints from residents. But recently he reversed his decision, instructing his Department of Transportation to loosen its ban and recognise pedal-assist bikes, or bikes that use a rechargeable battery to boost their speeds, as a legal means of getting around the city. Any e-bikes with a motor capable of pushing its speed above 20 miles per hour, or about 32 kilometres per hour, however, will remain banned. Advocates have offered cautious praise for the Mayor's decision, saying it is an important and positive step in responding to an explosion in demand for food delivery, supported by thousands of low-wage immigrant workers who deliver more than 100,000 meals in New York City every day. The Hyundai Company and its distributors in Saudi Arabia have organised its Safety Day with Hyundai initiative for a second year. The launch of this campaign was timed to coincide with the implementation of the Royal Decree allowing women to drive, and it includes a variety of activities, including lectures and seminars for both male and female students at universities in the main cities of Saudi Arabia. The events aim to raise awareness about road safety, 
followed by a test drive simulation program developed to educate students on safe driving measures. And that has been the news. The VFAX car sales figures for the first quarter of 2018 have been released and while the economy seems to be under pressure through high real estate prices, energy costs and health insurance premiums, we are still buying new cars. Compared to the same three months last year, car sales in Australia are up 4.4%. This corresponds to selling 135 cars per hour for every hour of the day or approximately five and a half more cars per hour than we were 12 months ago. The biggest increases are coming from sales that are classed as business. Part of the reason we are still buying new cars is that their relative cost has gone down. Take the Honda CRV, for example, which was released onto the market some 20 years ago with a base model price at about $30,000. The new CRV, which was recently released onto the market, starts at a base price of again around $30,000. If you take inflation into account, today's vehicle would have sold for $18,500 20 years ago. The new model is also very much improved. While a typical model of car is now achieving better fuel economy, there is some research to suggest that people are trading this off to get more power and the total amount of fuel being used is not decreasing as it should. While prices remain the critical issue in most purchases, people are not necessarily buying the cheapest model. They are looking for value for money and many want the bells and whistles that come with upmarket versions. Nearly 60% of Ford Australia's cars are its utility, the Ranger, and most people are buying the second or highest version models. The luxury car market is not doing quite as well. Mercedes car sales are down 2.5%, BMW and Audi sales are flat. Land Rover, which includes Range Rovers, are down nearly 24%. Lexus is down 2.6% and Porsche is down nearly 7%. Luxury cars used to have a lot of expensive options. Some still do, while others are still not cheap, but there are some signs of the cost of extras reducing. The other problem that luxury cars have is that many features are now finding their way down into more price-sensitive parts of the market. We are currently driving a Kia Stinger, which admittedly, with the upmarket twin-turbo V6 engine, costs $60,000. It's a large car with rear-wheel drive, but the top model comes with an extensive range of features, including heated and cooled front seats. It is also a stunning-looking car that we were driving the other day and someone tooted their horn and then at the traffic lights wound down their window and said how much they liked the look of the vehicle. Some of the more super luxury cars, which are rarely bought on price, have been doing well. For example, the upper large passenger cars over $100,000 are up 88%, although this is based on very small numbers. Sports cars over $200,000 aren't quite making the average, but they are still up by 1.8%. So what are people looking for? Well, it's not just the performance factors of engine power and acceleration, but functions such as connectivity. Apple CarPlay and Android Auto are features that people are particularly looking for now. 
Safety features are important, although given that most people think that they are better than average drivers, it is more for having nice technology rather than necessarily thinking that they may be the one in a crash. While there has been a move to some smaller vehicles, people are still buying cars based on occasional needs. The very large family is much less prevalent now than it was in, say, the 50s or 60s, but people are still buying for occasional needs. Sales of seven-seaters are doing well, and if you offer a medium-to-large SUV, it is now typical to have a seven-seat option. The SUV market is up nearly 11%. The real performer is the small SUVs, with sales up 27%. SUVs are still the biggest movers. Overall, the SUV market is up nearly 11%. The real performer is the small SUVs, with sales up 27%. Recent new models on the market, such as the great-looking Hyundai Kona and the distinctive-looking Toyota CHR, have helped widen the choice. It shouldn't be forgotten, however, that the light commercial vehicles are up nearly 9.5%, which has been pushed very strongly by our passion for utility-style vehicles, principally those with five seats and with four-wheel drive. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, autonomous vehicles is a development in progress, but not necessarily always along the direction of what the public might think. To help me discuss some of the issues in this matter, I have on the line Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Thank you for reviewing the draft of my paper that I'm submitting to the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management. They've accepted the principle of it at their national conference, which will be in July in Perth. You have some very good comments. Now, Brian, I think the first point about it is that we've had initial euphoria, but now we perhaps have tipped into what Gartner calls the trough of disillusionment. Is it that disillusion? Do you think we're getting negative given the deaths that have just occurred recently? David, I think it's more just to do with the practicalities of implementation. As people think more about autonomous vehicles, I think they then focus a little more on the challenges of implementation and particularly how you introduce something like this into an existing transport network with human-controlled vehicles and how they mix together. But yes, there's definitely a a sense that they're always looking for a silver bullet, David. They're always looking for the answer and that uh, a lot of people have thought, okay, autonomous vehicles just will be magical and they they think of the Jetson style of privately operated magical vehicles. And but then the practicalities come in around, okay, how would it how would it really work? And I think people then not so much a trough of disillusionment, I think it's more um, a dose of reality. I agree with you. I think we have been brought back to reality. We thought of autonomous vehicles as being all seeing and all knowing. Well, it's not that simple. And uh, what we've talked about in the paper, of course, is that it needs good things as simple as line marking. We know what it is now for us, but what is it for the autonomous vehicle? How does the autonomous vehicle see the line marking? Given, of course, that it's fine in the daytime, but what about when it's wet, when it's snowing and other certain conditions? Well, certainly your paper, I think the most important thing about it is that it takes this very practical look at what are the things as transport planners and engineers we need to think about. And you mentioned line marking, and of course, um, in our current road network, the lines are helping humans to work out where they are on the road and, and stay in a particular area. And of course, 
they're very generous because humans are quite fallible and um, get distracted. So they're wider than the vehicle. And, and that's because, you know, we tend to be a little bit sloppy. In another aspect, through intersections, they have to they have to stop. So you can't have the sort of a whole lot of lines passing through the intersection. So when we're talking about the kind of autonomous vehicle's brain, it's going to have to interpret this stuff. So first of all, the lines can be closer together. And otherwise, as you point out in your paper, many of the autonomous vehicle technologies will seek to find the edge of the lane. And so they'll go across and find the left edge of the lane and then kind of make their way across to the right edge of the lane. So they, they tend to, to sort of shuffle from one to the other. Meander. Meander. And when, and when the lines disappear at an intersection or on a curve, it's very hard for the autonomous vehicle to work out where it is and what's going on. They get lost. Particularly on a curve, if you've got broken lines that where you have a line for a while, then you don't, and then you do, and then you don't, as it's changing direction, in most cases now, the sort of technology that will keep you in the lane will do so only when it's pretty straight. And in fact, I was driving a car today where it turns off and doesn't work anymore. So it's not in any way like a cruise control, which you can depend on. It is at the moment only something that will correct you occasionally if you're doing wrong. Mm. And um, of course, there may be emerging technologies that will solve this problem. For example, you know, if the vehicle can work out where it is in space and on Earth to very high degrees of accuracy, then you don't need line marking. You're using GPS or something like that. But of course, our our technology at the moment isn't really um, fine enough. I think we can get down to kind of a metre or thereabouts, and we really do need to speak about millimetres when we're talking about autonomous vehicles, especially when we're mixing them with other vehicles and, and, and pedestrians and cyclists, as you point out in your paper. All right. Well, I, mate, I do appreciate all the effort that you put into that. We will, when I finally get the thing published and deliver it, we'll put it up on the website as well. But after the break... Maybe we might talk a little bit more lightheartedly with some quirky news. Look forward to it, David. You're listening to Overdrive. And here we are back again. Brian is still with us. Now, Brian, here we have this Czechoslovakian company in Prague who are now making retro-designed vehicles. Not exact copies, but hints at the nuances of old cars. Now, Brian, you've seen the one that they've got there, the Luca. Now, the interesting thing is that, of course, it's also an electric vehicle. But let's go back to the design, the Luca. Do you like the look of it? I love it. It's a very nicely designed sort of melange of classic cars that you can sort of put your finger on. I can I can see really a whole bunch of different vehicles in there, the Carmen Gear, a little bit of a Ferrari. I can see uh, the MGB in there. There's oh yes, in the headlights, particularly at the front. Look, it's a it's a very cute looking vehicle. And, and you mentioned it's electric. It has some um, the motors in the wheel hubs, which made me immediately wonder what they're using all of the sort of long bonnet space and uh, and the <laughs> space for. Maybe it's filled with batteries. But it's a it's a lovely, pretty looking little car. But it, it follows that whole thing of electric vehicles that are really just an electric version of a conventional car it's a two-seater sports car very very pretty very light i imagine and reasonably uh, affordable david i know your peccadillos and that that uh, you <laughs> would love the one that looked like a trabant wouldn't you 
<laughs> That's right. Yes, something a little more quirky. <laughs> Very working class. And that, uh, it, I don't know, is it a little bit like the bright steam train or the pumping engine that gets restored that it's made to a level of perfection that they were never made to? You know, if you watch a number of these period pieces in English television, they get these glorious old buses and cars going past, and every one of them is in mint condition. Uh, yes, yes. So do you think that's the sort of non-inauthentic kind of element of it, David? We restore art, don't we? Yes, that's true. I'm a little hesitant. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe I really do now prefer a car for its looks and I don't really want to go back to its old mechanics. Now, the only thing is, wouldn't it be nice to have some old mechanics except made well now, points and a <laughs> distributor, so you could get your hands dirty but at least you, it was as modern as it could be with the materials that it uses. You'd miss out on the authentic experience of standing by the side of the road in the rain tearing your hair out there, David. <laughs> I thought very much of enjoying this older style as I dried the plates with my Mona Lisa tea towel. Uh, maybe we do reflect back and try and use uh, old art or old style for a while. I mean, fashion goes through that in many ways. Indeed. All right. Uh, now, Brian, you have a story for us. Certainly, David. Uh, the residents of a village in uh, eastern China woke up the other day to find an 800-metre stretch of their 3.5-metre-wide road gone and just some rocky base course left. The mystery didn't take long to solve because uh, locals had, had seen a villager known as a Zhu driving a rubbish truck near the site at the time. Now, when they, um, they picked him up, he folded like a cheap suit. He was unemployed, and he, uh, he came up with the idea that since the road wasn't being used very much, he could basically take it and sell it. So this is what he did. He hired a digging machine and a, and a few trucks, broke the road up overnight. Imagine this, that it really mustn't be very well used if you're able to actually there and remove it at night. And then he got himself 500 tonnes of concrete rubble from this, so he wasn't picking it up in large slabs. And he then just took it down to a, a local building works business and um, who apparently get used to just random folk bringing truckloads <laughs> of rubble to them, where he sold it for 10 won per tonne, which is about $1.60 US. So he got, he got a little bit of return for that, but it didn't take very long for him to be charged with theft. You've got to admire the guy's ingenuity. Yes, he obviously involved a few other people in, in his nefarious plot as well if he had to, to hire some trucks. But yes, it, certainly he saw an opportunity and he, he grabbed at it. He, unfortunately, I think he uh, should have taken the road more travelled. <laughs> I think he's secretly a railway fanatic. <laughs> he's trying to promote public transport. Indeed. Now, do you ever watch any of those forensic cop shows? Oh, I love them. You know, they spray the special material down and see all the bloodstains. Yes. CSI. I don't watch a lot of those. I'm more the silent witness, the British show that I more like. You know, they call in Socko, who goes over something in immense detail. Well, in Memphis, in the US, apparently they aren't doing quite as well in terms of their forensic looking. They're misplacing some evidence. And when you misplace a person who has been shot in a shooting event, then I think you're really not getting past Forensic Science 101, really, are you? This is a fantastic story, David. The, the van is parked in the police impound lot for a month after having been you know, towed there or, t or taken there, and the, the body of the man is in the back the whole time. Just, that's... <laughs> 
that's not very forensic. Well, you know the trouble. You make students study for four years or more, living in near poverty, shared houses and that, and so they lose their sense of smell. <laughs> yes. Because everything is rotten and, and terrible and so on, and clearly they miss the most obvious point. Apparently he was in a seat. It was yes, in the back of the. It wasn't yes. as if he was under a tarpaulin or something. No, in fact, they they had some fellow who'd, who'd been in the car with him who'd also been shot, and he was taken to the to the hospital. Now he may have been able to shed some light on the missing person. Yes, he was just beside me, and look, he still is. Amazing technology. You know what was missing? One of those little signs on the back saying "victim on board," you know, rather than "baby on board." <laughs> Now, Brian, this is a matter where some research, I disagree with it. It's contrary to my belief, so I'm calling it fake news. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm doing this under the notion of freedom of religion and faith. Faith being something is without evidence. They've come out with some research that concludes that cyclists don't break the law anything more than the typical motorist. Can this be right? David, I agree with you. I don't think this passes the pub test. <laughs> Peter Barnaby Joyce's here. Uh, so this is a, a study that was commissioned by the Florida Department of Transportation, and it was it's a peer-reviewed paper that surveyed cyclists, recorded data, and, and came to this conclusion that they they don't break the law more than motor vehicle drivers. However, the system worked. They chose a hundred bike riders, fitted sensors, cameras, and GPS on their bikes, and then looked at the results. Now, immediately that this happens, uh, one of the great truisms is in research is that often measuring something changes it so people's behavior will change if they believe they're being monitored and i suspect that the hundred bike riders who are part of this um survey may have modified their behavior to be a little more sort of uh, law abiding true to the law yes yeah um for the purposes of the survey so look i i agree with you i don't think it passes the pub test i think cyclists um and, and anyone really pedestrians as well will will break the law if it's convenient to them and uh, if they feel they're going to get away with it so yes i don't think i would be placing any great stock on the results of this survey <laughs> no indeed if you put recorders on the system it's a bit like the catholic church really isn't it god is watching everything you do and so you, <laughs> you have a, a feeling well who was it was it um ah, the great scientist who said god is dead but don't tell my maid or she might kill me you know it's <laughs> Voltaire, was it Voltaire? Then even the breaking of the law by the cyclist was a lot of riding on the footpath. Now, if you're a pedestrian, perhaps you don't like that, but if you're a driver, good luck to them. A self-preservation, really, isn't it, in many cases? Right, that's uh, lovely. Thank you for your time, and perhaps we might try and catch up next week as well. Great, David, thank you. Thank you, and that's Brian Smith talking some quirky news, and we were talking a more serious matter before that as well. He's all things to all people here on Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, David Campbell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>